Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word comes from Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 beginning in verse 27 and extending to verse 31. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, what an amazing joy it is to be gathered here in this space this morning to think a year ago there was no one in this room but just a few of us uh, leading this service as all across Middle Tennessee we were gathered in living rooms and at kitchen tables. Lord, that's still true in some regards and yet, Lord, it's a sign of progress that many more of us are able to be in person at this time. We pray, Lord, that you would meet those even now who gather in those same living rooms and around those tables and who long to be uh, with your people again. Lord, we pray for them. And we ask this day, even as they worship uh, remotely from us, participating with us, we would ask, Lord, that you would encourage and strengthen them and that you would use this service for them and for us as a means by which for us to encounter the risen Christ by the Spirit in faith. Now, Lord, would you come and meet with us in this word from Mark chapter 8? And would you help us to see you as you have been presented and revealed? This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was in 1988 just before the release of Martin Scorsese's film, The Temptation of Christ, the Time magazine devoted its cover story of that month's magazine to the question, who is Jesus? The article, they interviewed dozens of scholars from a variety of different beliefs and a variety of backgrounds, and they distilled in that article... Uh, down to five potential possibilities for the true identity of Jesus Christ. These are the five possible identities. Number one, he is an itinerant sage. He is a world peace activist of sort, like Mahatma Gandhi, trying to help all of us just get along. Or, secondly, he's a Hellenistic cynic of some sort, a philosopher, a roving philosopher of the likes of Socrates, asking the big questions and trying to answer them with regards to life. Or thirdly, he's an apocalyptic prophet, 
uh, like the fiery kinds of the Old Testament, the Jeremiah's and the Isaiah's and the Ezekiel's. He's preparing people for the end of the world. Or fourthly, he's an inspired rabbi, an educator, a teacher. One is trying to get people to know the truth and inform all of the loose ends in their minds about what is actually real and what is actually true. And then, Time Magazine suggests there is a fifth option. It's a wildly unpopular option. What they called the classic Jesus identity. This is that Jesus is who he says he is. Now in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis likes to say that if we're going to really take Jesus seriously, we can't go on and on about this notion that he's a good man, that he's a great moral teacher, and then somehow or not discredit or discard his claim to be God. Lewis says that Jesus has really not left that option open to us. Anyone who is a great moral teacher could not also make such outlandish claims that he is God, that he can forgive sin, um, that he will return one day to judge the whole world. Lewis says if we look at the New Testament's account and we really give it a fair shake, we're left with only three options. Option one, Jesus is a pathological liar. And he can't be trusted, and we should all reject him and get as far from him as we possibly can. Or secondly, he's a lunatic. He's gone absolutely mad. He's crazy. He's to be pitied. We should have compassion on him. But if he had lived in a different time, he would have been institutionalized. Or thirdly, the other option that's open to us is that he is who he says he is. Now, if Jesus is a liar or a lunatic, then we need not waste any time this morning spending time thinking about him and talking about him and discussing him. We can just simply write him off and get on with Easter dinner. Some of you are going, well, okay, Easter dinner. I'm looking forward to Easter dinner. Well, there's more to Easter than Easter dinner. This Lord of Easter, if he is indeed that, this resurrection Savior, if he is that, then that changes everything. We can't simply go about our merry way, dismiss his teaching or embrace it. If he is truly resurrected from the grave, and if the claims that he makes about forgiveness of sins and the returning to judge the world have even an ounce of truth to them, then he deserves our undivided attention. Even further... He deserves our full allegiance this morning. The only proper response is to do what it is that we're doing. To gather and worship him. Now, Jesus and his disciples are making their way to Caesarea Philippi in the text that's before us. And as they walked, it was their custom to talk. These are a tr this is a traveling commuters kind of dialogue. And as they talked, a question began to form on Jesus' lips. The question, who do people say that I am? 
Now, it's not just a curious question from Jesus. This is not a conversation starter. It's not as if they didn't have enough to talk about and Jesus had to come up with something to keep the juices flowing. No, this question is of eternal proportions, even as I titled the message this morning, Eternity Hangs in the Balance on this question. And it comes at just the right time in the Gospel of Mark. If you've been with us in this series, we've been making our way systematically, chapter by chapter, through the Gospel of Mark. We're actually right at the halfway mark. Mark chapter 8 is midway to Mark 16. And in many ways, Mark 8 is the, the, the closing to the first half of the Gospel of Mark, which has been asking the question, what is the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's the same question Jesus raises here. Who do people say that I am? And at this point, Jesus' mission is well underway. We're, we've been able to sit at his feet and listen to his teaching. We've heard the reports from the people that he doesn't teach like the Pharisees. He speaks as one with authority. We've seen him do miracles of all sorts, far and wide. Now is the time to begin to close the case among his disciples with regards to who he actually is. And he starts by casting this broad net, well, like a good teacher would do, right? Uh, you know, asking the class generally, what do people say about uh, the Roman Empire history class? Oh, they say these things. What do you say about it? And all of a sudden, one gets put on the spot. Now, Jesus starts in that general cast and says, what do people say about me? What's going on out there in the world? I know you guys have your ears to the ground. What are the claims with regards to who I am? Three answers are given. The first is John the Baptist. Which if you're thinking along with me in the Gospel of Mark and maybe know a little bit of the history of where it is we are right now, it's a little puzzling that people think that he's John the Baptist because, well, John is dead. He was beheaded back in Mark chapter 6. Is it possible that people thought that John had come back from the grave? Well, yes, it's, it's possible that that's what the claim is here. But there's not, a lot, of, there's not a, a lot of history with regards to resurrection to think that was the, the ideal thought or the leading thought with regards to Jesus being John the Baptist. It's probably more likely that they recognize something of John the Baptist's ministry in Jesus. This is a man who preaches repentance like John the Baptist. This is a man who didn't come through the pathways of the religious organizations. He didn't get the stamps of approval from the Pharisees. He's a bit of a rogue religious leader. He's a man who gathers large crowds, normally not in the center of the city, but in faraway places. And, well, all that just smells a lot like John. This guy is in some way, shape, or form channeling the spirit of John the Baptist. That's what some people say. Anything else? Oh, they also say, well, some of them, that you're Elijah. Now, it's understandable that they would say, actually, Elijah. He's arguably the, the greatest uh, prophet of the Old Testament, maybe Moses notwithstanding. He, too, taught repentance, called the people of Israel back to God. And unlike John, Elijah did remarkable miracles. He, he raised a boy from the dead. He, he, he was able to do amazing things. He even, well, he even exited the world in a strange way, but by a fiery chariot. And, and we're told in Malachi that 
someone like Elijah is going to revisit before the day of the Lord, before the Messiah comes. So it's sort of understandable that they would say, we've been looking for this Elijah figure to come, and you kind of seem like him. Others are, well, they're not quite so sure. They don't get so specific. They, they just say, you're one of the prophets. You, you remind them a little of, of Jeremiah in some ways and, and, and others like Micah. And, and then, um, you know, we've heard, uh, we, we've heard I, Isaiah as a possibility too. Um, all of your teaching seems to resonate in ways that's consistent with an Old Testament prophet. Uh, everybody believes you're a mouthpiece of God. Now there's something to be said for every one of these guesses with regards to the identity of Jesus. And in fact, all of these guesses are touching upon real and true things with regards to who Jesus is. He is a prophet. He did do great miracles. He did call people to repentance. He, he, he wasn't a, a typical religious leader. He did draw great crowds in out of the lying places. He does look in some ways like these Old Testament figures. And yet none of these answers are sufficient for describing the identity of Jesus. In fact, any comparison of Jesus to any other person, religious or otherwise fails to truly capture who Jesus is because he's in a category all by himself. This is why even in the Time Magazine article written in 1988, as it lists these various categories, it's working with categories that have been known to humankind. Uh, typical ways that we label people to help our minds sort of get around uh, who they are. You, you know, we do this naturally. We meet someone and we size them up. And we want to put them in a box that's in our mind so that we can understand them and then we can relate to them in the categories that we've given to them. That's, well, that's the trouble when it comes to Jesus. We've never seen a box like this. There is no box that we could put him in. There is no place to be able to categorize him in human history. He is wholly unlike anyone else. The claims that he makes is not to speak for God, but that he is one with God. Not that he calls people just simply to repentance, but that he's able to actually forgive their sins. That, that he's not just simply the son of Abraham in a long line or a son of David in lineage, but he's actually what all of the history of the Bible is pointing to as its fulfillment. Claims of Jesus are of an exaggerated and elaborate form, the likes of which we've never seen before. And so Jesus drills in. He says, who do you say that I am? You've been with me for a year by this point. You've heard my teaching. You've walked with me. You, you've seen me when I'm in the public. You've seen me when I'm in private. I've taught you behind the scenes when you've not understood parables or couldn't make sense of miracles. We have walked it together as close as anyone has walked. Who do you say that I am? The you actually in that verse is in the emphatic position. Meaning to say he said something like you. What do you say that I am? It's meant to put them on the spot. It's meant to call out, as it were, where you really stand. It's somewhat fascinating that he hasn't done this before now, isn't it? 
If you just think through the whole scope of the disciples walking with him, it doesn't appear that he's had this dialogue with them yet. They've been walking with him. Maybe they've had all of these thoughts that the crowds have had. But over time, one title is the title that has risen to the top in terms of the identity of Jesus for the disciples. And guess what? Peter pipes up. I know that surprises you. Because he's so quiet in the Gospels, we can hardly get him to say a word. Here he is, he pipes up as a spokesperson for all the disciples, and he says, you are the Christ. Now, as we hear that, those of us who have heard Jesus Christ for many years, it hardly wows us. (laughs) We hardly think, well, yeah, of course, I mean... It's, it rolls off our tongue like it's his last name. You know, it's Jesus Christ. You know, that's sort of how we think of it a lot of times. It's just part and parcel to who he is. This was a radical statement from Peter. Peter is claiming that this is the one that all of the Old Testament has been speaking of, who is the fulfillment of the covenant promises, who is the hope of the people of Israel. He is everything that they have been looking for. He is the true seed of the woman that's come to crush the head of the serpent. He is the true promised son of Abraham who would be a blessing to the whole of the world. He is the true deliverer, even greater than Moses, who would rescue his people from their enemies. He is the true warrior like Joshua who would secure for his people a promised land. He is the true son of David who would rule with peace and righteousness and establish a throne that would have no end. That's who this is. This is a claim above all claims. He is the greatest that there ever is. He is the superlative. He is Jesus the Christ. It's an absolutely remarkable answer. And Peter has almost no idea what it is he's saying. Isn't that amazing? Uh, Maybe you know that experience. (laughs) The experience of getting an answer right and then being asked to explain it. And finding that, well, you would have passed it if if it was a short answer test. But now that it's an essay, (laughs) I'm going to really botch this up. You know, sometimes when you're taking a test, you have to stop short and uh, say as little as possible. Because you don't know very much. Peter doesn't doesn't know very much. He thinks he knows, but, but he doesn't. Because as soon as he says you are the Christ, Jesus begins to unpack what it means to be the Christ. And this moment of joy, this moment of astonishment that they are with the Christ and they have nailed his identity among all of the people who have thought about who he is. And here's Peter feeling very good because he got something right and he never gets anything right. And, And Jesus begins to say, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You see, it's possible to believe the truth and not really understand what the truth means. When Peter heard suffering and rejection, when he heard death, in Peter's mind, the word anointed one Christ doesn't go with rejection, suffering, 
and death. These two, these two things, this term and this description, they don't match one another. To be the Christ, to be the Messiah, to be the anointed one is, is to be successful. It's to be victorious. It's to be a, a powerful leader. It's, it's, to, it's to be everything of what you didn't just describe, which is the opposite of what we have always understood the language of Christ to be. You see, Peter had in mind that this Messiah, this Christ, anointed one, would be a national leader, a political liberator of sorts. He was going to come and he was going to bring the people of Israel back into their heyday. He was going to kick out the Gentiles, the Romans specifically at that point in time. He would take the throne, he would, he would lead, and a golden age would begin to burgeon again. He was that greater son of David. It meant joy, it meant victory, it meant restoration. That's what it meant to be the Christ. But Jesus here is telling Peter that it doesn't quite work in that way. Oh yes, it will mean joy. Yes, it will mean peace. It will mean restoration. It will mean all the things that in many ways you think that it means, except not quite in the way that you think it, nor is it going to come about in the way that you would expect it. Because what you want, Peter, is a crown without a cross. That's what you're saying, Peter. That's how you understand the Messiah. But I have come as this Messiah who seizes the crown through the cross. When I tell you I've come to be rejected, I've come to suffer, I've come to die, I have come through the cross to secure all the things that you, you want and desire and long for and have been promised. The cross is the way. It is not a defeat. It is the path to victory. It is, not a, it is not so much a humbling as to disaster, but a humbling as to ultimate glory. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. And he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. This was hard for the disciples to hear. And in fact, it, it seems as if they missed a lot of his foretelling. They're confused, even as we read in Luke 24 earlier in this text. They, they didn't expect the resurrection. They, they, were, they, they were totally dashed in terms of their hopes. When Christ died on the cross, all of their hopes died as well. Even so, when the women came and shared with them that the tomb was empty and what the, the dazzling men, the angels had told them, were told that the disciples disbelieved. They didn't immediately jump, as it were, on the, the news that was given to them by the women. It didn't strike them as this, surely that would be the case. We've been watching for this. But don't we see in the text, Jesus was plain. He was very clear about it. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'll be rejected. I'll die. But in three days, I will rise again. Do you know he's going to say that two more times before the end of the Gospel of Mark? He's going to take time inscribed here in the text to remind the disciples of what the real pattern and rhythm are. And it's like they never heard to be, to be rise again on the third day. It's like they never heard those words. It's like they never registered. It's as if, as we confess this morning, they lived with no hope of resurrection. It's as if the promises of God had been to them dull and unperceived. 
As we've been studying in the Gospel of Mark and the previous passages, what have we seen over and over with the disciples is they see what they don't see. Peter gets the right answer and he has no idea what he means by it. He's got the wrong explanation. He sees and he doesn't see. It's like us much of our life, isn't it? The things that we see that are so clear to us and then we get into life, into the mysteries of it and the loose ends and the defeats and the cross-bearing and we think to ourselves, is any of this ever going to be righted? Is there any meaning in this? Is there any life in this? Is there anything to hope beyond this? Is this ever going to change? Is, do I have any reason to hope? We live as if there is no resurrection. We live as if we're not a resurrection people. It's hard to believe in a happy ending. In the world in which we live, for some of us, it's, it's increasingly hard to believe in a happy ending. We live more by the, well, every good thing must come to an end. How many of you have said that? You know that's a lie. Every good thing will not come to an end. Only the good things for those who are in Christ never end. Only Zion's children know this. The power and the hope of his resurrection. The fact that this morning he mediates for us and loves us with an eternal and an enduring love that will not fail, though our love for him will constantly fail. The perfection of his love is that he will uphold us when we do not uphold him. The glory of this Savior is that he was resurrected for the same people who killed him. That his love was of the kind, whereas he hung on the cross, his prayer was not one, Lord, give them what they deserve. His prayer was one, Father, forgive them. For what? They have no idea what they're doing. They see what they don't see. They don't get it. Even Peter, in the wonder of what we see in the resurrection narrative, as he runs and he stoops in and he looks into the tomb and the body of Jesus is gone, he walks away and it says he marveled. He was, he was having this, this recognition wash over him. It wasn't that it dawned on him. It was that he was still in the mystery and the wonder of it all. There was going to be so much more to understand. Because when he thought all of his hopes had been dashed and went on back to fishing in the Sea of Galilee, he found out on that first day of the week, that first Easter morn, that in fact his hopes were just beginning. What he thought was the dark of night was actually on the horizon, the break of a new dawn. That the world that had gone down in a garden into darkness through the eating of a forbidden fruit would now be born afresh in a garden where we for the rest of our lives would feed upon Christ as our living bread and a drink that would satisfy. We read this week an article... In the Spectator magazine, a magazine, British magazine, where the cover story, again, was actually Easter. 
Jesus still making headlines after all these years. It was on a variety of things related to church and, and religion, but uh, the article ended by simply saying that Easter is about transformation. It's about life after death and the life that comes after death and the hope that changes everything. Has it changed everything for you? You today live in a world where a man came back from the grave. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. It's already begun. And those of you who are in Christ have the same spirit that raised him from the dead. And upon his return, the graveyards, which look a lot like gardens, will tell the real story of the first Easter. That the one who was raised from the dead has secured you if you are in Christ today. When the trumpet blows and the graves are opened up and we are resurrection people are known. That day is coming. Every good thing does not come to an end. This is the dawn of a new universe where every good thing never ends for those who are in Christ. Father in heaven, we would ask that the truth of this gospel would be the gospel that changes our lives afresh together this day. And for those in here who may not have known Christ, that today might be the day of salvation. For death comes to all men, and therein after the judgment. Only those who are in Christ have the hope of the future to come. Lord, would you today let scales fall from our eyes, and seeing shall we see clearer than we ever have before. That every good thing is ours in Christ. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.